Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast, presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and this week we are talking to a woman that I am pleased and honored to call my colleague at Tennis Channel, who also happens to be one of the greatest doubles players in the history of tennis, Hall of Famer Pam Shriver. Once I kind of like realized I do have what it takes, then I was pretty much all in to try and get as good as I could be. And I just hit the wall, and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I almost let go of my top 10 mentality. That was the call that changed my tennis career. I looked over and he just had this tear running down his eyes and he just said, I didn't know it was gonna be like this. While Pam played doubles with a number of partners, it was of course her pairing with the legend Martina Navratilova that led to explosive success. A grand total of 74 titles, 20 of which were grand slams. Their record-breaking career included a 109-match win streak that spanned from 1983 through 85. Pam talks about what it was like to team up with Martina and the experience of being part of such an unstoppable team. She also reflects back on her career and how mindset and footwork are areas she believes she could have worked harder on. Another part of Pam's story is one that was not publicly known until 2022 when she came forward to share that she had been in a relationship with her coach who was both married and 33 years her senior. In her conversation today with Chris, she candidly addresses how that relationship impacted her tennis career and her life overall. I leave you now with host Chris Bowers and Pam Shriver. Chris, take it away. Pam, what do you think it is that makes you a Hall of Famer? What made me a Hall of Famer was my doubles partnership with Martina. Um, my singles was terrific. I had some Hall of Fame moments, like getting to the finals of the U.S. Open when I was 16. But my singles career wasn't good enough. But you coupled it with my partnership with Martina that lasted about 10 years, 20 majors together. That's what put me over the top. But are you claiming a good 50% of the credit? I know it's easy to see Martina as, um, you know, the, the the legend, but she needed a doubles partner who could control at least half the court. And I, th- I think I controlled that quite well. Our partnership wouldn't have lasted as long as it did if I didn't hold up my end of, of the court. Most of the time it was the deuce court. Uh, Martina is a perfectionist. She expected the highest level from all members of her team. It just so happened when she asked me to play when I was 19 years of age, I happened to be entering the prime of my career anyway. And my the way I played in singles was perfect for the doubles court. Uh, so it just meshed well, and it stood that test of time that makes a partnership special. We'll come back to your partnership with Martina in a minute. But uh, in terms of you growing up, what was your family background? And was there any excellence there that you could draw on? Well, I had an excellent family. I have an excellent family. But um, as far as I was the only one to play elite level tennis, but I can tell you, I remember playing tennis with all four of my grandparents, um, particularly my grandmothers, both loved the sport of tennis. My mom's side of the family was passionate about tennis, um, even more than my dad's side. But I can remember in my life playing, as I say, with my grandparents, my parents, my siblings, and now my kids. So uh, we're just kind of your generational family lover of tennis. How much of their passion rubbed off onto you, or was that just a 
a confirmation, an affirmation of what you were into anyway? Well, obviously I had the exceptional skill with hand-eye coordination. My feet weren't all that great, but my hand-eye coordination was exceptional. But I wouldn't have found out that it was exceptional if my parents hadn't given me the exposure to a great hand-eye sport and one that lasted a lifetime. I mean, I also played high school basketball. I loved playing many, many, many different kinds of sports and also watching sports growing up in Baltimore. But the thing that really combined was my family giving me the access to a tennis racket and a ball at a very young age. And then I, I had a wonderful club to play with a lot of other kids. And it was just the right atmosphere for me. And also growing up in Baltimore, I say a big part of my tennis story is that I didn't overplay. And I think where I grew up, I didn't go to an academy in like an uh, like in Florida or California. It helped temper how much tennis I played, which I think helped me have, a, even by my standards during my era, a pretty long career, lasted 19 years. Did you play mostly on hard courts or were you playing on some softer courts? I played a lot. In the Northeast U.S., there's a lot of green clay, Hartrue. In fact, Hartrue's uh, is a clay court surface particularly popular in the Northeast of the U.S. And their headquarters are in Hagerstown, Maryland. And I, I ended up buying an indoor clay court club when I was about my fifth or sixth year on the tour uh, four indoor courts called Orchard Indoor Tennis Club. So I actually owned an indoor clay court club for about 15 years. And do you think that playing on green clay was also a factor in the longevity of your career? I definitely do. I turned 60 uh, July 4th, 2022. Just started to have a little bit of low back and hip issue. And when you think about the length of career I had and what it takes to have the kind of career I had, Many players have already had many issues. So I do think playing on softer surfaces and not overplaying, especially when I was in the middle of my biggest growth spurts, I didn't know it at the time. It wasn't calculated. I probably would have accepted more court time, but it was just hard to get. But in the end, I think it was a really good thing. Because, I mean, you're a contemporary of Tracy Austin. She grew up on the hard courts of California, and that, among other things, took a much greater toll on her body than courts took on yours. Yes. And I always have looked actually at Tracy because we are the same age and we started, we met each other in the 12 and unders. She was uh, number one in every age group. And I eventually became tucked in the number two position for quite a few years. But I've always thought that the reason I was able to have a 19 year career and she couldn't was because of the surface I grew up on and that I couldn't play unlimited tennis. Because? Because of the weather and because of just it was it was hard in Baltimore. And I also Tracy also went to, you know, regular school. We didn't do online. They didn't really have online learning the way they do today. Didn't have online. That's right. That's true. Well, yeah, distant learning or however. Um, but um, I think going to a regular school and having that kind of a that amount of time you have to put in your school day also helped me temper how much tennis I was playing. So you were saved partly by the weather and partly by the schooling. Yeah, exactly. And I think also my love of other sports. I just I wouldn't have given up basketball prior to my freshman year. I was glad I got to play one year of varsity basketball in high school. Gave up skiing at 13, but I did a lot of different things up till about 13, 14, 15. You mentioned the other kids at the club where you grow up. Um, good opposition for you. Many of those will hit the same sort of strokes as you. What made you win more matches than they did? 
Well, I go back to the natural skill I had, which was above average hand-eye coordination. I can remember some early coaches I had. One actually ended up being my history teacher in high school, Mr. Marty McKibben. And I can remember I was about six, seven years of age, and he'd been around sports his whole life. He was a high school coach. He played, he coached tennis during the summer. That was his job during the summer, so he wasn't full-time. But he looked at me one time and he said, Pam, I've never seen anybody with such good natural hand-eye coordination. And he'd been a three-sport athlete at a college, Bucknell, growing up. And um, so he'd been around sports a long time. And that was the first time I thought, hmm, I've got something a little, uh, I've got a skill here that I need to develop. You're laying a lot of value on the natural ability that you had. Have you engaged a lot with the nature-nurture debate? And have you got any sort of thoughts on where the percentage falls? I think in some skill set, it varies. So I think on your physical gifts, I think a lot of it is nature. I feel something like, say, mindset training that is becoming such a big part of today's approach for the athlete and to have people, uh, someone on your team that can help you with a mindset. I think that can be nurtured a lot more. Um, I think we've learned a lot of things about the brain and how important it is to to learn new things and try new things and have that growth mindset. And I do think you can learn some traits on the mental side that are harder to just pick up. And then also you have your natural build. So I was six feet tall by the time I was about 14, 15 years of age. So that went into how I played as well. It was like the vision of somebody who had pretty quick hands, slow feet, but quick hands. The best place for me was up at net. And I fell in love with playing from that position. Did anybody ever say to you because of your physical attributes, oh, you'll make it or possibly even you won't make it? Because a lot of coaches have a fixed idea of what actually a good tennis body is. I never remember anybody telling me I couldn't. Um, I actually just needed a little bit of help to realize that I had the, the skill set to have that as a goal to play pro tennis, play elite level tennis. And then once I kind of like realized I do have what it takes, then I was pretty much all in to try and get as good as I could be. When you got to the US Open final in 1978, there was a lot of talk about teenagers because Tracy Austin had made her debut at Wimbledon the previous year as a 14 year old. You were still an amateur at that stage. Did the whole thing take you as much by surprise as it took the tennis world? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because I think back to that open a few things I remember before the tournament. Um, I, I actually slipped in to be seated 16th. So my, my first eight months on the tour, I'd collected enough points. There were a few withdrawals. So I remember I was ranked around 20. But you could you could go from zero to 20 back in 1978 in nine months. And now you can, too, if you get to a final of a major. I guess what we saw Radakanu did, I mean, she, the way she zoomed up the rankings. But it's certainly a lot harder now. But, yeah, there's, it was definitely easier back then. Uh, so, so having a seated position, so I got protection in the draw. There were only 16 seeds and weren't 32. And then my draw fell my way. But it was really that semifinal win over Martina that put me into the stratosphere for that tournament. Because, again, you mentioned I was an amateur, last amateur finalist at a major. I was my rookie season. I was pretty much brand new. I was only playing my second major. So it wasn't on the cards, but the way it unfolded, you know, over two weeks with six matches to win to get to a final, 
it's incredible how each step you go, you get more prepared for the next step. And that's what happened there. I mean, you beat Martina on two tie breaks. Was there a sort of, right, I have nothing to lose now. I've got to the semifinals and I'm playing one of the two top players in the world, Chris Everett being the other, and that you relaxed? Or were you ready to beat her in your own mind, even going on court? Well, I didn't approach the match like one point at a time. When I look back and I think about my mindset, I was very much just in the moment. Um, I remember we had a couple of rain delays. The planes were flying low over Armstrong. Um, it was the she, first year at Flushing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was first year. Um, so there's a lot of different things for Martina. She was also entering a major for the first time as a major champion because she won her first of 18 singles majors just at Wimbledon over Chrissy a couple of months prior. So she had pressure of being number one, pressure of being a major winner, playing a 16-year-old underdog. So I knew... As inexperienced as I was at the pro game, I knew when you're the clear favorite, it does add pressure. And I, my game, the way I came to net and would um, you know, serve volley, take second serves, come in, I knew I had a game that could disrupt Martina and get, get to the net first, which was really my best option to beat her. What was the feeling when you actually won the match point? I actually didn't have much of a reaction. Um, both times, I beat Martina twice at the Open, one in 78 and the other in 82. Um, and I remember having pretty low-key, hardly even celebrated, to be honest. I just kind of put my head down and shook her hand. And I kind of noticed that today, to this day, is when somebody has an unbelievable win and they just kind of Medvedev type, they just kind of like, oh, shucks, you know, I've won it. Um, so that was kind of like my approach I really, especially the second time, because we were already doubles partners in 82, it just didn't seem right to have a big celebration. She's my friend. She's my doubles partner. So I can hold two feelings, which is the joy of winning, but I also felt badly that I denied Martina the U.S. Open. But it was a semifinal, so there was still one more round to play. And was there also a feeling of, okay, job only half done? That's probably where I went wrong. Because in the two days, because we were supposed to play the final on the Saturday, but the other semi between Turnbull and Everett was second semi, and the rain came and they couldn't finish their match. So they needed to finish it on the Saturday. So I had sort of two days to think about it. And I really became, that's when it became really, whoa, what have I done? I'm in the, I'm in the last, I'm in the finals of the U.S. Open. I'm 16, I'm an amateur, and I'm playing Chris Everett, who's won it. I think she'd already won it four times in a row by then. And I honestly went into that final hoping that I'd play a competitive match instead of figuring out what I could do to win. So that was kind of my, I guess, one of the few mulligans I'd like to have is to go into that final because I didn't know it would be my only final. I thought I'd get there. I thought I'd get to a singles final again, but I didn't. And what kind of bothers me a little bit I, a little bit, is I played my only major singles final without truly believing I could win. When you think back to who you were at 16, and we you know, Martina Hingis was winning tournaments at 16, Grand Slams at 16, others, you know, they're five, six years off, even, even the belief. Did it come too quickly for you? Well, certainly. I mean, the trajectory was kind of normal up to that point. I'd made... I'd won some a small tournament or two. I'd gotten to tour semifinals. I got to the third round of Wimbledon. But that was like next level. So in hindsight, when I also think about the pressure I felt the next 12 months, 
was suffocating. It was really challenging. I've thought about it a lot since Radicano won coming out of qualifying, and then the year she ha- she's had since then, or the 15, 16 months, I can totally relate to that. Now, obviously, she went one step further, and coming out of qualifying was so sensational, but it does upend your life, whether it was in 78 or whether it was in 2021 with Radicano. It is something that takes time to get used to. So, yeah, it was a lot to handle in a short period of time, but I wouldn't change it. Do you have an explanation for why that was your only major final? You got to eight semifinals and they, you lost them all to quality opposition. Yeah. I never played anybody in a semis of a major other than a future Hall of Famer. And when you think about other times, other eras in tennis, it's kind of like what the men have been through the last 15 years. It's just hard to get to a, a final, much less win one, without going through two of the big three or plus other great players. So I wouldn't have believed it at the time. If you'd told me a week after that U.S. Open final in 78 that that would be it, I'd look at you like, no way. I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back. I'm going to win them. But then when you think about the era I played in and the dominance of Martina and Chrissy and when Groff came in, started to be a force in 85, 86, obviously your Grand Slam year in 88, it's no wonder it was a problem. These were difficult players. They didn't back away. When you played them in a quarter or a semi of a major, you had to play one of the best matches of your life in order to beat them. And you had to be able to do that two or three times. And it just never unfolded. And I didn't even, when I think back to the eight semis I did play, there weren't even that many where I I should have won the match. They were just, I was outplayed. My opponent, whoever I lost to, was just better than me, whether it was Chrissy, Martina, Steffi. Monlakova once or twice. So with the benefit of hindsight, would you have done anything different? You know, I probably would have. I've I've thought about a few things. I, I certainly think even though it was before the era where you worked on your mindset and the the whole mental side, I could have been a lot better mentally. I also should have worked, even though my feet weren't as naturally quick, nowhere near as my hands, I should have worked on my footwork a lot more. And we all know there's drills, there's things you can do. This is that nature-nurture thing. Okay, naturally, I didn't have the fastest feet. My build and everything goes into that. But when you look at, and you think about someone like Sharapova, how she improved her footwork and her agility on the court, and she's maybe an inch taller than me, I mean, you really have to work hard sometimes when you're a certain height, certain build, and I didn't put in enough time working on the feet. And the, I guess the other thing would have been I should have been more open to some tweaks in my game. I kind of feel like I got really stubborn. Like I had to serve, I felt like I had to serve in volley on all my first serves. I I kind of played this one way. And, you know, once the power started to come in the game more and more, you know, I had these flat shots, slice flat shots, and it was just hard to control. So I kind of wish that I had been more open to developing change, new shots, instead of just kind of relying on the same game for 18 years. And if you had, is it possible we'd have been sitting here chatting about why your attempt to play with greater shape and top spin actually meant that your career went downhill? Well, that was the fear, actually, because, you know, and I'm cognizant of that right now as I try and, you know, help a player on the tour right now to get get better is you you have your strengths. And the the thing that's really hard is to improve your weaknesses without the, it affecting your strengths. And I think I always felt if I changed some things and I 
came about the game a different way, that it would take my core strengths away. So that's why one of the reasons I backed away from it. Plus, my my primary coach at the time did not support changing much, thought it was really the right way for me to play. You said you'd have worked more on the mental side. What do you think you'd have done? Well, I'm a big believer now in things like visualization, you know, the breathing techniques, just ways to keep stress away um, or ways to deal with stress on the court. And I feel like there were some times in my career where instead of shaking the stress off and just kind of having the tools to deal with it, I just kind of like got more and more frustrated. Like I'll give you a simple example. Knowing what you can control and what you can't control and accepting it and recognizing it, that's a huge thing. Like, okay, it's windy out. Is there anything I can do about the wind? Not a thing. The only thing I can do is be prepared to play in the wind, accept that it's windy and it's difficult, and then go from there. Whereas I would kind of fight the fact that it was windy and I'd be upset that it was windy. Well, there's nothing I could do about it. So anyway, with maturity, I became much more understanding of these things. But by that time, it was too late to help my tennis career. Well, we'll get on to the doubles in a second where you really were outstanding. But just a final word on the singles. I mean, you won 21 singles titles over a 19-year period. You got to nine Grand Slam semifinals, went into the final uh, in, in 78. That's not a bad haul. Or do you look back and say, if I'd actually done some of these things, the mental approach, the work on the feet, I actually could have done a lot more. Well, here's the thing. I, I racked up so many wins in the in the eight, nine years where I was a top 10 player, say between 1980, after a couple years after I got the U.S. Open final. I really played terrible the first year, year and a half. And then I really got back. I got my game back. And once I got into the top 10, I stayed there for like eight years. And I was playing a lot of tournaments, singles, doubles. So I can't really question too much that era. But once I hit the wall, I can remember exactly when I hit it. It was after coming to the Australian Open in 89. So I was 27 years of age. And I just hit the wall. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I I literally announced my retirement. And then I undid it. And I but I almost let go of my top 10 mentality. And I can remember it to and I needed to handle that stage differently. Because honestly, There was no reason physically, mentally, with a little break, I should have been able to still be a top player for quite a few years. And so that was another one of those sliding door moments where I wish I'd handled that point of my career better because um, the quality really went from consistently at a high level to like I then became like a 20 to 50 player. Do you wish you'd gone through that moment earlier? It's a good question. Um... No, not really. I don't, I don't. I was on such a roll. I mean, '89 was a big. Uh, it was a difficult year for a lot of reasons. I hit the burnout personally. Martina, my partner now, we'd played since '81 together. She also hit a bit of a burnout phase, and as a partnership, we actually took a break. Summer of '89, uh, we had won our 20th major at the Australian Open of '89. Uh, didn't win the French, and then I didn't win Wimbledon, and then we called it. You know, Martina. Uh, really needed a break, and I understood it now. So there were a lot of things going on in 89 that just kind of like 1989 that kind of just took my career on a different path and not a path of excellence. It was a path I didn't work as hard, and I just never got the belief back. 
The International Tennis Hall of Fame's collection is vast, spanning over 25,000 artifacts and millions of images. However, only a fraction of it is on display in the museum in Newport, Rhode Island. But the team at the Hall of Fame has been diligently digitizing its vast collection, so no matter where in the world you are, you can explore some of tennis's greatest history. The International Tennis Hall of Fame has produced exhibits on fashion, rackets, tennis balls, cans, and more. And none of it requires you to leave the comfort of your home. You can explore the award-winning digital exhibits at tennisfame.com slash digital exhibits. Each year, the International Tennis Hall of Fame bestows the ultimate honor in tennis to those who have set themselves apart, both on and off the court. The 260 individuals in the Hall of Fame hail from 27 countries and are enshrined in the museum at the Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. In addition to the legacies of the Hall of Famers on display from Dick Sears to Andre Agassi to Chrissy Everett and more, the museum boasts a stunning collection of tennis history that is open daily. Plan your trip to the International Tennis Hall of Fame at tennisfame.com slash visit. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer Pam Shriver. Let's talk about the doubles. When did you first get into conversation with Martina about playing doubles with her? Well, I think instead of a conversation, I think it was a shared experience we had at U.S. Open of 1980. Um, she was playing with Billie Jean. I was playing with Betty Stova in Betty's last tournament. Betty had announced her retirement, was going to start coaching Hanna Monlakova. And Betty had been my partner for about a year or two. And we got to the finals and we played Billie Jean and Martina and we lost six and six, the same score, I think. I think we lost six and six, same score I beat Martina in, in singles a couple years prior. But I think I proved to Martina that even though I was 18, that I was really good at doubles. And that, um, you know, at that point she was looking, I didn't know it, but she was kind of had her eye on a younger partner starting in 1981. So she called me about a month after that U.S. Open final and asked me if I would play doubles with her. And then maybe she knew that Betty was retiring and maybe I didn't have a partner. So that was that was the call that changed my tennis career uh, and made me the Hall of Famer uh, eventually. That was the call that I couldn't – that was the business break that I got. Everybody, I think, who has a really good business career, they have a break of some kind. They have a good – you get the call or you get like the deal that gives you the reputation that you're a great negotiator. Whatever it is, you get that break. And that was my break. And do you think it was the final of the U.S. Open in 1980 in the doubles rather than the fact that you'd beaten Martina? Well, maybe it was a collective number of things. I think probably the way I handled myself when I beat her in 78, the way I played. By that time, I was on the tour for two and a half, three years, probably figured that I had a personality, sense of humor that would gel well with, you know, with Martina. So I think it was probably a combination of things. But I think what put me over the top was the way I got to the finals at U.S. Open with Betty. How did you feel about Martina at that stage? Because she was already, I mean, she was world number one. She'd won Wimbledon a couple of times. She was a, a legend in, in the social field as well as the tennis field. Yeah. Well, look, by... When she called me, she was already the best doubles player in the world. So, you know, as somebody who loved doubles, it was the only national junior title I won was in doubles. That was like a dream come true, to be able to get the call from the best. So um, I don't know. But then, as I said earlier, 
I, I didn't feel the pressure to perform, but when I look back and I know Martina's personality, it was a good thing that I had those eight years of really high, consistent play, not that many injuries, things I could manage, and we just you know ticked them off one at a time. Were you in awe of her? Talk to a few people who played doubles with her who've said, you know, they had to overcome a certain, yeah, I suppose the, well, the wrong side of admiration. Given how I've come to understand my personality, I don't get in all that often of people. Um, and I kind of looked at Martina as while she was older, I still looked at her as a peer and somebody I was now competing on the tour with and and then eventually playing doubles alongside. So I don't, I mean, I respected her. I knew she was something special, but I don't think I held her in that kind of awe, which is probably a good thing if I wanted to perform and feel comfortable on the court. When did you get the sense, this is really going to work? Well, we won our first tournament in Cincinnati. Uh, this was during the indoor swing. Again, it's going back in the early 80s. So the Australian Open wasn't yet in January. So this was an indoor swing in the U.S. And when we won our first tournament together, it clicked from the beginning. And we won our first major together, Wimbledon of 81. So, I don't know, it was obviously just a really great first year. And then we just had year after year after year, we had great years, including a two and a half, almost two and a half year stretch where we didn't lose a match. And you won the Grand Slam, the pure calendar year Grand Slam in 84. I mean, what's it like to be winning every match? Does it create its own pressure? It did a little bit by the end. I remember when we won our 100th, it was at Eastbourne, um, maybe, uh, I don't know, second or third round win. It was middle of the week and the promoter, George Hendon, had a fun party for us to celebrate. I mean, 100 straight wins you don't see very often in any sport. And then by the time we got to Wimbledon and we got to the finals playing Smiley and Jordan, Kathy Jordan, um, we definitely felt the pressure. We, I mean, we were up a break in the third, and I don't think we'd ever lost in our whole career. We had never lost from being up a break in the third that I can remember. But that was the one time, and I think the pressure did eventually get to us. But I'm assuming that in that, what was 107-match streak that you won, from early 83 to the end of 85, there must have been plenty of matches that you should have lost, but you won on reputation. Well, honestly, we won so many matches comfortably during that span, but there was one match in Madison Square Garden, the finals. The main, our, the main competition we faced over the longevity of our career, Sukova and Kota Kilsch were a team that we ran into a lot of times. And Maybe we lost. Maybe we lost to him, but I don't. But I remember this one time in the final. We it ended up in a tiebreak in the final set at the Garden. And I remember it was uh, six five. No, it was five six. Their serve, and I actually had moved from the deuce court to the ad side because Mike Estep, Martinez coach, really thought we could be even better if we flip sides and had our forehand volleys down the middle and our backhand returns out wide. I don't really know because we hadn't lost in a year and a half. And I'm like, this isn't a good idea. But anyway, we won that match 7-6 and 3rd, 7-5 in the breaker. And that was the close closest call we had um, until we lost to Smiley and Jordan in the finals of Wimbledon. So we really, we lost some sets, but we didn't really have scary moments in the final set except that one time. If somebody looking back through the history of doubles says, why were Narasilova and Shriver the best women's doubles team of all time? What would you say? Well, I think you can certainly start with a strong physical attribute, which is that we're a lefty-righty combination. And when you think about great doubles duos 
through generations, whether it's Newcomb Roach, Fleming McEnroe, uh, the Bryan brothers, um, or Navratilova Shriver, Navratilova Billie Jean King, you know, there is a certain element of benefit if you each have one or the other, lefty-righty. You know, that it's very hard for the opponents to get settled into the return games when every other game it's a different spin. So anyway, and, and we could choose who would serve on the tough end. It would be easier for a right-hander at certain times in Australia than a lefty, and you could just manipulate things in a great way when you have the lefty-righty. I also think, obviously, the way we played in singles. We basically played doubles when we played singles. We served and volleyed. We chipped and charged the way doubles was played back in the 70s and 80s. So we just had, we had like the natural style. And also we had the chemistry. I mean, you can say all of this, but if you don't get along well, it's not going to last. Not given how much time you end up spending together. Although one of the things I think we managed well is we didn't hang out that much together. I mean, sure, we warmed up some before major finals, but we each had our singles career, and we actually didn't spend as much time as you would think together. Do you go for dinner regularly? Or? Not regularly. I can remember a handful of times where we kind of needed to just discuss things, and we just needed to go out without anybody else. And just I can remember one time in Worcester, Massachusetts, during Virginia Slims of New England, and things were a little bit rocky for a period and I can't remember exactly what year but we sat down and we had a good heart to heart and then we were back on track again for another couple of years. Can you say what actually? You know I can't really remember exactly but it was like maybe it was that life had gotten busy for both of us we had people around us and we just hadn't had a conversation to kind of understand where each of us were at that point in time but I can just remember sitting down and just having a good old chat and then the air was cleared Um, and that was maybe a good lesson in any relationship is that boy if you start to feel something going wrong sit down and talk about it because a lot of times it can be a misunderstanding or you just need to clear up what's going on so I don't know it certainly worked on that occasion. Did you ever find yourself thinking the same things as she was thinking or she thought the same things as you were thinking? Were you on the same sort of telepathic level? Not like the Brian twins, but obviously when you play that much, you win that much and you, you know, we won 79 titles, 20 majors over almost 10 years. You certainly know each other so well that you don't quite finish each other's sentences, but as far as it goes on the court, knowing where each of each of you are going to position yourselves, you know, what plays you like to play under the greatest amount of pressure, um, you know, it just clicked. And were you as good as each other in dealing with when your partner had an off day? Because there must be days when you were playing badly. Oh, sure. and there must be days when Martina was playing badly. Yes. I mean, I think that was actually one of her really good strengths. Um, I would say she was the captain of the team probably a little bit more than 50%, but it was pretty close. There was certainly enough times where she was really wiped out from either a lot of singles or whatever, where I just needed to kind of take the lead a little bit more. So we had the ability to pick each other up. And some sometimes, yeah, you're sort of on equal footing, you're sort of co-captains, but I do think actually doubles works quite well when somebody of the two takes the lead. Um, that doesn't mean you don't get input. It's not like your word is the final word, but you just kind of, it's just like this subtle little leadership thing that can happen. So I think we traded off in a really good way when 
we needed the other one to pick it up. So did you alternate, depending on circumstances, who was the sort of subtle leader or was it generally Martina? Yeah, well, it was really natural. It's not like we went around with like an armband or a captain, you know, a big captain C on our shirt. Um, but it, it might be like very obvious, like maybe she had a two hour and 50 minute singles match that she just barely won and she'd already been to media and she'd been doing this and doing that and then she's got a rush and blah, 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 blah. And we're back out on the court. Meanwhile, I didn't have a singles match that day. All I had to do was plan and get ready to play the doubles. So that might be a time where she would just rely on me a little bit more. I can remember early on in our partnership a couple times when she had devastatingly difficult matches usually in majors, particularly one in Australia early on in our partnership. And uh, she just was unable to, like, 100% reset for the doubles. But for the most part, I can't believe how well she reset to get ready to give her all. She just took so much pride in being not just the best in singles, but the best in doubles and mixed doubles. I'd like to get on to some of your other achievements. And perhaps we can start with the Federation Cup in particular the first of your two titles in Czechoslovakia in 1986, because that was a massive event and incredibly emotional for Martina, because it was her first time back uh, 11 years after she defected. How do you remember that whole week? Well, it was an amazing team. It was uh, Martina, Chrissy, Zena, myself, and we were all four in the top 10. Obviously, Martina and Chrissy had been at number one uh, together almost most of the last 10 years. And as you said, to be able to go back with Martina after 11 years of being away from her homeland was incredible. One of the things, I'd gotten permission from the USTA to play Newport, where they had a women's grass court event after Wimbledon, and I ended up winning... I think I won Newport, so I got a late start. I didn't get to Prague until like Monday afternoon, and the team had gotten there maybe Thursday or Friday the week prior. So I kind of missed out on a couple of days, but the greatest thing we got to do was on one of our off days be able to go to Martina's small um, community or village where she grew up right outside Prague, see her club, have a home-cooked meal in her house, see her parents, her grandparents, you know, her family, her dear friends. So it was sort of moments like that that was pretty outstanding to share with her. Did that have any input into your doubles partnership, having shared such an intimate moment with her? Well, that was five and a half years in. So we had already, um, we'd already won a lot of, most of our majors by then. We'd already had the 109, or seven, seven or however many, nine, I don't know, win streak that was hard to repeat. Um, we had played each other in majors a lot. We'd already been through so much, but that was certainly one of the most unusual weeks. Um, and also how the whole public scenario played out, which was how Martina was uh, not really uh, recognized the way Zena, Chrissy, and I, and I was recognized. She was not really mentioned by name. Uh, and there was just some things going on that week that we just couldn't believe. Um, and she handled, I must say, you talk about pressure weeks. There was a lot of pressure for her to play well that week. And another example of what a great champion she is. Did you play doubles that week? With yeah. Her? 
yeah. I just didn't, I think, I can't remember if I played the first match whether or not, Zena may have played one match, but I played everything else, and including the, um, the last match against the Czech, the Czech team. And for you, as an American born on the 4th of July, how was it to win the premier team competition of women's tennis for the USA? Well, it was, it was terrific. It was two years later. The Olympics was really the moment. That was the biggest prideful moment for me, for my country, because the Olympic Games meant a lot to me, actually, growing up in Baltimore. Um, so, yeah, I took pride. I, I Fed Cup... Federation Cup, Fed Cup, Billie Jean King Cup now. I played it a number of times, but there were quite a few times where it honestly did not work well with my schedule. Um, and there were quite a few times where I chose not to play because it was going to hurt my individual schedule and my season, I felt. So there were some times I turned my – and I, I don't feel badly for that. I think there are times where you need to be really selfish in order to be at your best. So there were a few times where I did give up the team competition in order to – have a better individual schedule. A couple of other uh, peaks. You won the U.S. Open in 1991 with Natasha Sverova, and you were a mixed doubles champion, Roland Garros 87, with Emilio Sanchez. How do they stand out for you amid so much that you did with Martina? Yeah, well, it, um, it, it got me up to 22, the one with Emilio and uh, the French Open. That was fun. Um, his top spin was just a, a lot for the female to handle. Um, I, I had trouble playing three events. Unlike Martina, I wasn't quite as fit and strong as Martina. So I found by the end of a major, if I was in three events, ugh, my, my, my serving arm, my right arm just really struggled. So I didn't play a lot of mixed, but it was nice to win one. The one that means the, uh, the most of the two was the one with Natasha. Because the partnership with Martina, the prime time season with Martina of eight and a half years straight was over. We did play some in 91, 92. But Natasha was dumped unceremoniously by her partner. They'd won Wimbledon. And then her partner, Larissa Sevchenko, decided to play with Novotna. So I'm in Havana, Cuba, playing Pan American Games, which no points, no prize money. It was more the experience. That's when I realized that Natasha was available. So I can remember trying to figure out how from Havana, Cuba, I could get in touch before cell phones, before anything. How do I get in touch with a Belarus player who might be wherever she is in the world? And I somehow figured it out, and she said, sure, she'd play with me. And then who do we end up playing in the finals? Novotna and Savchenko. And it ended up in a third-set tiebreak. And I can just remember, I knew I'd been in the same situation two years prior with Mary Jo Fernandez. We lost to Martina and Hanna when Martina needed a partner change. We lost 7-6 in the third in 89, or else I could have had 23. And I was just really pleased that Natasha was able to win that U.S. Open because I know how it feels when you don't have your regular partner. I mean, she was a Soviet player in 91, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, it was just, that was the other thing that was going on. The Iron Curtain was in the middle of falling. I mean, the Berlin Wall had fallen in 89. The whole Soviet Union was being broken up. Her country was becoming more independent. She had decided, she had said a couple of years prior, from my memory, she said, I'm going to start taking prize money. So to me, Natasha is one of those hidden figure pioneers, That how she gave a voice to the athlete from the old Iron Curtain countries and then... 
So when we played, it was all happening. It was all changing. And so having to get hold of her as urgently as you could before someone else snapped her up yeah. when you're in Castro's Cuba. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the determination of the champion. I mean, does it even stretch to as far as how do I get a, to a telephone where I can phone? Well, I think if I remember correctly, you know, we all used to go through player agents a lot more. When you didn't have cell phones or Internet and you didn't know where somebody was, you just go to their agent. And I think uh, that was the... I think that's what I ended up doing. You were also involved in sort of tennis politics at the time because you were president of the WTA Players Association for a while. I mean, you talk about not wanting to play three events at the slams. Did you find that being president of the Players Association took some of the lifeblood out of you and perhaps detracted from your tennis? I think it did a little bit. Um, I think, though, when I think about my personality, I like to experience different things. I like to have a voice. I also looked up to how Martina, Billie Jean, and Chrissy all had a voice. They were all president of the Players Association. They they went to so many days of meetings right before majors. Like, people don't realize um, how much time. In the, like, I know at the Australian Open uh, on the Friday, they had the what's now the Player Council would be a similar group. They had it on the Friday. We used to always have ours like on the Sunday, like Saturday or the Sunday, like literally a day or two before it started. Um, so, I, yeah, it, it took a little bit away. But honestly, I wouldn't trade the experience. I think it was really good. And I'm all for the principle of the player having a voice where the decisions are made. In your late 50s, you came out about the relationship you had with your coach, Don Candy. You described it in retrospect as an inappropriate relationship. I wonder whether part of the motivation for that was because there is a problem or certainly potential problem in women's tennis with the, the casting couch syndrome, yeah. where a player who wants to show that they really want to get to the top sometimes has to make decisions that put them in a very, very difficult problem emotionally and ethically. Well, 100 uh, percent. I didn't tell my story because I wanted to cast any kind of shame or blame on, uh, you know, Don Candy. I really did it because the whole syndrome of uh, either a coach or a team member crossing over the lines and ending up having uh, a sexual relationship with their player is totally inappropriate. It's a, it's a power imbalance. It's a, it's a position of trust. And then the position of trust is used in a way to gain access to you physically that should never happen. Um, so basically I told my story knowing that in the decades since, in the decades before, it's happened way too much, including right now, in this era right now. And I just see, I've seen too many players' careers get negatively impacted by this. And I also think it doesn't do the coaching profession. I don't think it makes coaches or physical trainers or wh whoever on the team abuses the relationship, it doesn't make their profession any better either. Like the coaching profession in tennis would be a lot more professional and it would be healthier if the team members just stuck to the on-court uh, or the things that make you better on the court and, did not, and you do not cross over the lines. You do not blur the lines. It's way too complicated and 
oftentimes you're you're obviously usually the players the younger way sometimes way younger in my case it was 30 years younger and you just don't know what to do you don't know how to stop it you're afraid you're afraid it's going to hurt your game if you don't you know follow the path that where it's headed and it just happens it can just happen without you kind of realizing so i don't know i wanted uh i wanted my voice to be in there to weigh in but if you've got some, let's say, teenage girl who has been brought up with orthodoxy about being a high achiever in sport, who's been told you've got to give everything to this, you've got to you know, make sure that you're totally focused on your tennis, and then that girl is in a position where there's a choice between either a relationship, which deep down she knows is not right, right. or the feeling of, do I actually come off this idea of doing everything to further my career, how does one create the environment mm -hmm. whereby that is not the dilemma that I've just painted it as? Yeah, well, you have to do a lot of educational training uh, where people have to realize both sides, both the player and the team members have to realize that when you complicate things by crossing over the lines, you are really putting your player in the most amount of risk. Um, it might be okay for a little while, but in the end, it's a it's a losing proposition for both, especially if the player is really young. And I also felt like it was important for parents, and I know the role of the parent can also be a problem, but, you know, parents have to go in with their eyes wide open. If they think that their child, who might be not such a child anymore, but let's say 16, 17, 18, they're out on the tour um, they just have to realize that I think the family and, um, and the parents, this is really the onus on the parents, have to realize that things can happen and to keep their eyes wide open. Like my parents had no idea. And that was part of my whole shame about it was like, and I never could tell my mom. My mom died a year and a half ago. And part of the reason I felt more comfortable, I think, telling my story is I didn't feel like I was going to crush anybody. My coach had died. His wife had died. You know, I was decades past this happening, but yet I just know it's uh, it it needs to go in a different direction, and I believe it is. Did you get good resonance from coming out with this story? Yeah, I mean, look, it's never easy, is it? I mean, I had to tell my kids were old enough; they're all late teenagers, seventeen, seventeen, and eighteen. I I wanted them to know what I was going to do. Um, you know, I I told my sister, you know, but I. I just felt like it was time, and I also felt that I needed to come to grips. That was something that had happened in my life that changed my entire pathway, changed my pattern in relationships. It changed, you know, basically I feel like it it hindered my ability to develop a healthy relationship because the first one was so full of shame and hiding and secretive, and that's not the way it should be. I mean, when you care about somebody and, you know, it should be a very – happy, open situation. Do you ever wonder whether you might have been a, a different tennis player? I hesitate to say better tennis player because you achieved so much anyway. Had you not had that relationship? Well, I do look back at, this, at the time, the five and a half years where I was in the relationship, and I think back to how much anger I had on the court. And I do think a lot of my anger was in this whole situation of knowing this relationship never should have gone down the pathway uh, I didn't know what to do about it for the longest time. 
Um, and so I kind of dealt with it by being angry. Productively? It, mm, it helped me cope, but no. Anger on the tennis court for me kind of took my ability away from having clarity of thought. So in the, in the long run, for the most part, no, it did not help. But it was a way for me to kind of, it was the only way I could sort of get through it. To a happier event, 2002, you're inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. What do you remember about the induction day and what did it mean to you? Well, it was really special to be inducted with Mats Wielander. And we were the only two inductees that year. And I think any time you have a male and a female tennis player, and we did, we knew each other. We didn't know each other that well. I'd already been to Newport. By the time I was inducted, I'd been up there almost every year for, I don't know, 15, 16 years, maybe even longer. I'd been to many, many induction ceremonies because I grew up in Baltimore and it was just the grass courts of Newport. It was like a, it was a magnet for me. So I knew what I was getting into much more than Matt's. Matt's had never set foot and he lived in Connecticut, but he, I had like 60 people up. He had this small little handful, but I remember after we got our plaques and we had been inducted and we were doing the um, circle inside the um, Hall of Fame courts, I looked over and he just had this tear running down his eyes and I went, he just said, I didn't know it was going to be like this. And I I had a great time. I had a wonderful time. I was able to share it with my grandmother and everybody except for my kids because they, they were a couple of years away from being born and many, many years away from being able to remember it anyway. But it was it was a special weekend. If you're asked for advice now, let's say for youngsters and also for tennis parents, what would you most tell them? Well, I think if you if you have the if you have the natural ability and you know you you can compete, then don't leave kind of like the Martina approach, which is to don't leave any stone unturned. Novak's done it beautifully. Rafa has most of the great champions. They're great because yes, they're tremendous tennis players, but they also Iga Swiatek's doing it to this day. They're very meticulous with the details, and at the end of the day they're going to look back and say, I did all I could. And even though most of us do everything pretty much, there's always, to me, there's always a couple of other rocks you could have turned over. So I think that would be one of my things, is just to make sure that you consider all the ways you think you can get better. And because you only have, even though the careers are longer now, they're still, <laughs> we don't have long careers. And you consider how, how long you can broadcast, how long you can negotiate, how long you can be a teacher or be in the medical profession. Even though it's longer, you're still about done in your late 30s, 40. And as a parent, you know that there's no such thing as perfect parenting. So if you've got a gifted child who you want to give every chance to, but you also want them to have a happy childhood, that's a hell of a balance. It is. It is a hard balance. It's a hard balance for the, for the parents. Um, I have a tennis court at home and I, there's a coach, Alexander Stevenson, who played the tour and she coaches on my court and has a handful of kids that are pretty good. And some of the parents, they just think their kid's going to be like the world beater. And you can see they're working harder almost than the kid. They're thinking about their child's tennis more than the child is. So anyway, the imbalance can happen from any number of people on your team. So it's more remembering to make sure your child is maturing and gaining agency and gaining the voice and able to speak up for their needs and their wants to be as good as they can be. Pam Shriver, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and memories. It's been fun. Thanks, Chris. 
Thank you so much, Pam, for being with us today and for sharing so honestly and openly. It has been an honor to have had you join us here on the Tennis Worthy Podcast. That's going to do it for today's edition, but be sure to give our other Tennis Worthy Podcast conversations a listen. And don't forget to rate and review them wherever you get your podcasts. The Tennis Worthy Podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. I'm Brett Haver. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.